Welcome to the Humans Under Grace Bible Study Podcast. We're getting ready to have an old-fashioned, line-on-line, precept-on-precept study of God's Word to search out those deeper truths and gain a greater understanding of the Bible. We would love for you to join us today as we dig in and learn what it is that God would truly have us to understand from the letter that He wrote to us. Hello there, God bless you, and welcome into the Humans Under Grace Bible Study Podcast. We are going to answer some questions today. We've, re- we've received several of them, so we'll just take the time and get those all situated out. We'll jump right on into it. First question, in the study of Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, you said the stone or rock was symbolic of Satan. Then in verse 25, you said the rock was symbolic of Christ. Can you explain where you get the difference? Yes. So for every positive, there's a negative. With Christ, there you have the Holy Spirit. And then on the negative, you have that spirit of Satan. With Christ, you have the true rock, that cornerstone, that foundation. With Satan, you have the false rock, that one that pretends to be Christ, but is shifty. It's moving. And... As I said in Ezekiel chapter 28, the king of Tyre and prince of Tyre was Satan. And God said that you are full of beauty and wisdom. You're the full package. And that word Tyre or the the country of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, of that time in the Hebrew, when you translate it from the Hebrew, it means rock. And so it's giving you a clue there that he is a false rock. And where does that false rock come into? At the end or in the latter times, whenever the Antichrist is here, during that tribulation, that's going to be that false rock that everybody's putting their hope on, believing that he's Christ. But the thing is, whenever Christ shows up, the true rock comes back and sets up. Well, then that rock's just going to be, it's just going to roll away. It's the false rock. So that's where you get the difference in that. Just like you have the... uh, the Christ in the flesh is here, was here, and was a great teacher, and was our Savior, and died on the cross, the ultimate, you know, the ultimate uh, sacrifice. Well, then you're going to have the Antichrist who comes back, or who's going to be here. He's going to be lying. He's going to be a false prophet and false teacher, and going to be telling all these lies. So, as I said, for every positive, there's a negative. There's always. Satan's got something coming. He's he's a trickster. He pretends to be Christ every possible way he can. Even as it would say in in the Corinthians, as Paul would say, even down to changing his little minions, or, or not his minions, but him being able to transform into an angel of light. He's going to look so holy. So that's what the that's how that's how you get the the difference in that. All right. Here is my question. During the during the Transfiguration, what is the importance on the Mount of Transfiguration? What is the importance of Moses being present? Is it to show the similarity between Moses' delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and Jesus' impending exodus delivering the world from the slavery of sin? Or is it because his face also shone in glory when he came down from receiving the Ten Commandments? Or am I missing something else? All right, so if you go to the last chapter of Deuteronomy, 
just flip back there right quick. Come on. All right. Last chapter of Deuteronomy. I believe it's 33 verse. Nope. 34 verse. Oh, verse five. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he and that he was God and he buried him in the valley. Now, God won't touch a dead body because they are very unclean. Then if you turn to Jude. And Jude is a short little book right before Revelation. It only has one chapter. It's going to be Jude, verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. So Satan didn't know where the body of Moses was. That's what that's talking about. The reason for that is because God transfigured him. That's why he showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, to show that you have the lawgiver and the prophet. And it symbolized or gave us a very good idea of who the two witnesses will be who stand up or who come back and witness during the time of the tribulation of the Antichrist. All right, then Elijah, the first great prophet. Okay, Malachi predicted he would precede the Lord in Malachi 4, 5. Right. Also in Matthew 17, Jesus says, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. And the disciples understood Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. So my question here is, will Elijah precede Jesus again in the second coming? Yes, he will, as one of the two witnesses. Or does John the Baptist fulfill the prophecy of Malachi? So John in Luke chapter 1, it tells us that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And he wasn't Elijah. If, if they would have accepted him, then they would have accepted Christ. And then the world would have accepted Christ. And then that would have been basically the second advent. But they didn't accept him, which led to the crucifixion of Christ. And so that's why he came in the spirit of Elijah, because it was not the second advent, and it was not time for that millennial kingdom to set up. Let's see. I guess my other question is, why did John the Baptist deny that he was Elijah? Because he was not Elijah. He was in the spirit of Elijah, but he was not Elijah. In John 1, he denies he is Christ, and then they ask him if he's Elijah, and he says he's not. And he is not the prophet. Right, he was not Elijah. And that's out of John's own mouth that he was not Elijah. But yes, he did fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah about make way the... the, uh, the well, let me just turn over there. Isaiah chapter 40, before I misquote this. really don't want to misquote any of this. Uh, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare you a way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places again. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. All right, so this is talking about John the Baptist making way. He was out there. He was baptizing folks. He was turning the heart of the children to the fathers. And 
he was getting it, and, and that's plural, fathers, meaning that some children would choose God and followed Christ. They came to got baptized, and then, you know, later they would follow Christ as his disciples, or not necessarily disciples, but as his students. And then some of them went the other route. They Their hearts turned back to their father, who was the devil, as Christ would very plainly lay that out. And matter of fact, John even did whenever he mentioned the generation of vipers, and which led to the crucifixion of Christ. All right, and... Okay. If John the Baptist is Elijah, why was Elijah present at the transfiguration? Well, it's because, like I said, he was in the spirit of Elijah, but he was not Elijah. And that also pointed to, in the transfiguration, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you had the lawgiver and the prophet, which is why I say it's a very good indication that those are the two who will be here during the time of the tribulation of the Antichrist as the two witnesses. All right, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, it says, not to add or take away from the word, yes. But in Matthew chapter 5, Christ added to the law and made it stricter. How is this not contradictory? Well, you got you to gotta think, what was Christ doing at that point? He was teaching his disciples how to go into the world and how to teach, how to carry this word. So as a teacher, if you are ministering for the kingdom of God, if you are out here teaching the Bible, and all of a sudden you start having this hatred build up, and somebody shows up and you hate that person, well, that's not a righteous act. That's not a righteous thing to do. So you've got to keep your mind pure and... Hold, you know, hold yourself to a higher standard. Judgment begins in the pulpit. And so you've got to be sure that you're, you're riding the line. You know what I mean? You're on that narrow path. You've got to keep your mind right. And that's what Christ was saying. Whenever you're going out and you're teaching, don't hate. Don't lust. If, you, if you're out teaching and, you know, you start getting thinking about lust or something, then your mind's fixing to get off. And it might stray from this word, or you might start trying to corrupt this word in some way or another and become a false teacher. So that's what he was doing, was getting his disciples ready to go and minister. All right, if I have repeat, uh, repented, if I have repented for a sin, there we go, and I still feel guilty, does that mean that I didn't truly repent and was not forgiven? No, it does not. It means that maybe you haven't forgiven yourself, or it means that it keeps coming up in your head, you think about it, and you think that whenever you're forgiven, you're not supposed to ever think about it or even remember it. But the thing is, we learn from experience. That's part of the flesh. You know, you go through things to experience them, to figure out how to do them better the next time, or avoid it the next time, or whatever it may be. So if there's a certain sin that keeps popping up in your head, then it may be, hey, you remember this happened? Let's try not to do that next time. You got to forgive yourself and move on. And also, Satan is, one of his names is the accuser. He could be sitting over there constantly just kind of nagging a little bit, just keeping that fresh to make you feel like you're not 
worthy to go out and teach or that you're not worthy to do anything for the kingdom, but you are. You're forgiven. That's why Christ died on the cross. So don't let him sit here and do all this accusing and keep you on the bench and sit out there playing ball and instead of out here handling business for God, whatever it may be. But no, it's whenever you repent, you're forgiven. Forgive yourself and just know I mean, you will remember it. It's not going to get wiped away. Be great if it did, and we would learn from that, but it, it don't. All right, in the story of Noah and his family, the floods came and destroyed the world, but Noah and his family were kept from it. Is this not an example of the rapture with the future destruction of the world? No, it's not. Now, how can I say no, it's not? Well, one, there's no rapture. Nobody's leaving here. Uh, you're not fixing to pull a ripcord and shoot out of here. That's not part of the Bible. Matter of fact, Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 20 tells God is telling the false prophets, I'm against you that teach my people to fly to save their soul. But the thing about Noah, let, let's talk about Noah. He didn't get pulled out of the world there in that. He went through those storms. He went through the floods. Now, he was on an ark, right? God told him he prepared this ark. He told him how to build this ark. He got on it, shut the door, and the floods came. And he went through the floods, through the storms, through all of that. But he was never out of the world. Why do I bring that up about the ark? In Revelation, let's go to Revelation chapter 12. What are we at here? There's 14. Revelation chapter 12, verse 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the serpent cast this out of his mouth. Well, what comes out of the serpent's mouth? It's lies. So this was a flood of lies. The ark, nowadays, for us, is this word of God. It's the truth. We've got to build this ark around us. We've got to dig in deep and learn this word and build this ark. That way, when that flood of lies comes, we don't get caught up in it. We rise above it because we know the truth. And that seal of God is in our heart and in our mind. And we won't be caught up in this flood. So that's the deal. That's, that's how that works. There's, no, it was not a... An example for the rapture. Let's see here. I've heard different people talk about how big their mansion will be in heaven, as if some have bigger mansions than others based on what happens on earth. Are there different levels in heaven for those that barely made it and those that made it with flying colors? All right, so the word mansion in the Greek, it gets all been out of just taken out of context. In the Greek, it is mino or monet. And what it means is a resting place. It's not talking about a castle. It's a resting place. And matter of fact, we can have our resting place right now. We can get our rest in Christ. That's whenever Paul said that Christ became our Passover. Well, the Passover is the high Sabbath. And Sabbath means rest. So that's where we get our rest at now. And we can get it not just one day a week. We can get it 24-7. He made that available for us. Now, as far as... The levels and stuff, the only thing I can think of is, well, the only thing I can think of in the uh, King James is in Revelation where it talks about robes of righteousness. 
those pure linen, uh, the, the pure white linens that were woven from the righteous acts of the saints. Some are going to have long flowing robes and they're going to be just beautiful. And then some people might have real skimpy robes. It just depends on the righteous acts. And the righteous acts don't have to be evangelizing or teaching or preaching or anything like that. It can be opening a door for somebody. It can be as little as smiling at somebody. Just saying hi. Just cheering somebody. Just brightening somebody's day is a righteous act. Doing real good at your job, showing the way that a Christian can work, then just hammer down and getting it done. That's a righteous act. So it it don't have to be all kind of like Christ would say, don't go out here and brag to everybody about what you're doing. Do it in secret and God who sees in secret will reward you in secret. All right, and the last one, I was simply curious about certain policies that are being passed and laws that are being made and how they relate to the Bible, such as abortion. Well, I'll just cut and dry. Abortion's murder. That's all there is to that. It's a form of Molech practice. You know, in ancient Israel, the Israelites practiced this form of idolatry called Molech worship. And what they would do, they, it, it says that they would pass their children through the fire. What is that? That means they were sacrificing their kids for their own gain. They thought that through sacrificing their children, somehow or another, that would come back and bless them. And God said, I couldn't have even imagined that. How did y'all come up with that? I could not have ever even seen that. And people nowadays, you know, we're so sophisticated and educated and all this stuff and you just... Oh, man, we're on our high horse, and we'd never be like those heathens. What is abortion? It's killing your children for some type of selfish gain. Whether it be, oh, well, I'm just not ready yet, or I've got this career, or whatever it may be. It's murder. Luke chapter 1 tells us that John the Baptist left in the womb. He was six months conceived, left in the womb, when Christ was in Mary, was conceived and they walked in the room, uh, in the room, and he was three days within three days old, and he leapt because he felt the spirit of God in Mary. Well, for him to feel the spirit of God, that means that John the Baptist also had a spirit. So the spirit is in the womb at conception, and they put all this, all these words like fetus and embryo and all that to dehumanize it. They are still humans. It don't matter what I mean. It's murder. Just, that's where it's at. It's murder. It needs to be done away with. Uh, but that that's, that's how it relates to the Bible. It's murder. All right, what a question to end on. So, anyway, if y'all have questions and you'd like to have them answered, uh, you can email us at questions at humansundergrace.com or you can write us to our P.O. box which is given in the, in the little outro. So God bless y'all, and y'all have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Humans Under Grace Bible Study Podcast. If you have any questions that you'd like to be answered on the podcast, you can email us at questions at humansundergrace.com or you can write to us at Humans Under Grace, P.O. Box 1467, Tatum, Texas, 75691. Thank you 
and God bless you.